Hey, stay tuned, listeners. You know we're launching a new Monday podcast for members of Cafe Insider. It's hosted by me and Ann Milgram, former attorney general of the great state of New Jersey and a frequent guest on Stay Tuned. Today's conversation is in two parts. In part one, we'll talk about the latest on Mueller's investigation and the appointment of Matthew Whitaker as acting attorney general and how those two things are related. In part two, we'll talk about potential permanent AG replacements, the sealed indictment of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, and the implications, if any, for Mueller's probe. We'll also talk about the bipartisan criminal justice reform bill and its prospects, called the First Step Act, described by the New York Times as the, quote, most substantial rewrite of the nation's sentencing and prisoner laws in a generation, close quote. So part one of our conversation is available in the Stay Tuned feed, which you're listening to now. To listen to part two, go to cafe.com slash insider and sign up. You'll get access to full episodes of Cafe Insider, our newsletter, text alerts with my reactions to breaking news, and more. So let's get started. Anne? Hey. How are you? I'm good. How you doing? How's the Thanksgiving prep going? Oh, um, <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't started yet, you but there's, there's tons all, of time. No, I, you? my parents do it, but we help. My sister and I are big helpers. How about you? Who hosts? I go out to um, my in-laws. Excellent. So, so we take a plane uh, to the Chicago area oh, wow. and, and can't bring anything. So we're not as big helpers as you. That's that's a uh, convenient. But you know we are. You know what we can do. I can I can maybe treat the family to conversation about the things going on in the world. Maybe we'll listen to this podcast. <laughs> um, maybe people will be giving thanks for the Cafe Insider Thanksgiving podcast. parade. This, <laughs> Cafe Insider. This so as usual, there's a lot going on. I think we should talk first a little bit about uh, the Mueller investigation. Yep. Developments there with respect to the prospect of written questions being answered in written form by Donald Trump. Uh, what the Whitaker appointment means, and and more. So let's start with this this news about Donald Trump saying uh, on television that he has responded to written questions from Bob Mueller that were easy. In that his were words. easy. Yes. Yes. Um, he probably gives himself an A plus mm-hmm. on that, as he did with respect to his old presidency, uh, as he was talking about raking leaves. They're easy, forests. but they're also a perjury trap. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So so I guess I guess a couple of things that people may be confused about. How much does Mueller need written answers to these questions? Um, you know, to my mind, you take what you can get. Um, they have some agreement, it appears, not to ask questions about obstruction, but only about, you know, the collusion aspect of the investigation. Um, obviously, based on your experience and my experience, the real way you get to the truth and the real way you figure out who's lying and who's not is to sit in a room like we are, right. except without headphones. And, and, sit and face-to-face yeah, and sit ask face-to-face questions. And then have follow-ups. So the written answer thing is a bit silly, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's also, it, you never see it in criminal cases or, or almost never see it in criminal cases, right? It's the kind of thing you see in the civil space where people are suing, companies are suing one another, or people are suing when the consequence really, it's about money in some way or about a wrong. And in that case, you have written depositions, they call them, and people write answers to questions. That's often followed up by in in person depositions where you'd get an opportunity to sit face to face and ask the next questions. The problem, I think, is exactly what you say with written questions, which is you ask one question and the person answering it here, Donald Trump, gets to decide how much he writes, how little he writes, and there's no opportunity for a follow-up. And as you and I know, it's often not the first answer in which you can find out whether or not someone's truthful. It's the second or third or fifth when you're asking the follow-up questions. It's never the first almost ever, right? The whole power of an interview or an examination is in the follow-up. Do you think there's any value the written questions can provide? You know, I, I, I guess, maybe. Um, I, I find it very, very difficult to believe that anyone 
who has decent counsel, and whether that whether that's true or not in this case is subject to some de- some yes, debate. Yep. It's very hard to get in trouble, and if there's a dicey area where the truth might harm you with respect to answering a question, you dodge it. I right. mean, th- this president is actually very very good in many ways in dodging live questions from members of the press and um, and I assume from lawyers. Imagine how much easier it is when you're asked a question, you know, what did you know about X or Y meeting? It's very easy through, you know, heavy lawyering and editing, even if Donald Trump initially, which I don't believe, initially answered the questions himself, to just evade the question and not say anything that's going to incriminate you. you know, there was this thing that we used to deal with in the Senate, right? You'd have a, somebody come to the Senate panel to be confirmed um, or in an oversight hearing. And there was a Q&A period and senators would ask questions of the person mm-hmm. and you might get some light. I mean, not all, not always because members of Congress are not great at asking questions. Or, or follow questions. Or follow questions. But then there was this period where, you know, the chairman would say, well, if you have more questions, you can submit them in writing. You know, questions for the record, QFRs they were called. Yep. And how many times did you read anything revelatory? Very, very rarely. In a QFR response? Never. I guess the one place I wondered if it could have value would be on the sort of question of, you know, for example, did you know about that summer meeting in Trump Tower? Yes or no. And so he could have a very general answer. You could say, I knew after the fact, but not before. But we have to assume that Mueller knows the answers to every question he asks. And so to the extent that there is a binary yes or no answer, it could be a little bit helpful. But my instinct is the same as yours. First of all, there's no discussion of obstruction, which we obviously would want to hear from the president because the president's intent matters for that crime. And the second piece is that how, how... really beneficial it will be, I think, is of limited value. But again, it's better than nothing, I think, is probably the Mueller team's approach on that. The other thing the Mueller team, I think, is doing is what a lot of prosecutors do. Sometimes you want to uh, ask questions of someone because you're trying to, you know, figure out what the truth is. Sometimes, relatedly, you're giving the other person an opportunity to explain themselves, right? So that the record is, look, we didn't just blunder forth and charge you or make accusations. You have an opportunity to explain in your own words what it is you did. I think that's a great point here. Also, you know, if we assume that Mueller knows a lot of the answers to the questions, then in some ways it is a bit of a small test of truthfulness, but it is the opportunity for the president to say whatever he wants to say on those points. What do you make of this this idea that the president, as you joked earlier, said they were very easy? And it's a perjury. He he, he took 100 (laughs) years to subject himself to this. Yeah. And it's a perjury trap. 18 months. Um, I mean... You know, a, in, a long in, in, time. In fairness, they hadn't given him the questions that, that early. Uh, it makes it seem like it was a breeze and that he answered them not as lawyers. In any universe, is there any universe in which sort of unedited answers by this president would be given to the special counsel? There is no way. I mean, you and I both know they may have asked him the answers to each of the questions and sort of gone through them. And then they've taken his answers and completely written them as lawyers would do in a way that provides him, you know, in their mind with no legal liability, I think, is what his lawyers are going to do. Do you think even there's any likelihood in this universe that it happened the way the president said, that he got the questions, he sat down at his desk and he wrote out answers? Zero chance. No. The way it works is you get these queries from a prosecutor, you sit with your lawyers, and you don't put any pen to paper. The, the, The client does not put anything in writing. The lawyers take it in. Someone is taking notes. They can uh, cast it as, I guess, attorney-client privilege, work product privilege, what have you, so that it can never be gotten. So the drafts can never be obtained by anyone. And you massage it until you have it. In, In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if you have a conversation first and it is the lawyer who takes the first stab at drafting the written answers. And then, of course, 
you show it to the client, in this case, the president, who then has to adopt it and say, you know, is everything here correct and accurate? Or make changes. Or make changes. What do you make of the whole perjury trap thing? I mean, they, he says it all the time. Giuliani, his lawyer, says it all the time. Yeah, it's a nice phrase, but, you know, don't lie. Right. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a perjury trap. Look, and if it is true that there are things on which people lack a memory, right? And so, you know, the idea of the perjury trap is, I guess, one version of the perjury trap is that you know all the facts, you have all the calendars, you have all the emails, and you know about obscure facts that the witness may not know, and you pose to them unfairly without refreshing the recollection questions about meetings that maybe they've forgotten about, and then they answer definitively and said, I never met that person. It's like, aha, you lied. That's not what's going on here. Not at all. Do you think, though, given the nature of the um, hostility towards the Mueller investigation, even more pronounced in the last few days, that the process of having to answer these questions even though I bet they're fairly straightforward, is um, putting the president in a particularly bad mood and freaking everyone out at the White House? There is no doubt in my mind that there's incredible anxiety and stress around this. There, there are a few ways we know that. First of all, I mean, he's sitting in, he has, he's got to put something in paper, right? He's got to, you know, he's got to commit to a version of, of events, which as we've seen publicly, his version of events often changes. So that's stressful. The second piece is we saw him tweeting like crazy last week about the Mueller investigation. And it seems you know, very likely to be connected to this, that he's on the attack against Mueller again. You know, he's talking about answering these written questions, probably in an effort not to have it leak as well. He's trying to get in front of it, but it it definitely feels like there is anxiety. You know, here's the other thing that's going on in the last week. So maybe part of it is having to take your head out of the sand and answer these questions and figure out what your story is going to be and get it straight. But the other is all these people have been saying to friends and some people out loud and on the record, Guess what? I'm going to be arrested soon. So this guy, Jerome Corsi, who's a Roger Stone associate, said outright in an interview last Monday, he expected to be indicted by Mueller. And I assume, in, and you probably do too, that he got a target letter or, or something indicating... Or he was asked to flip yep. and and it was indicated to him... That he was going to be charged. This is your chance. Yep. You know, your chance for uh, redemption is now. If you flip and if not, you should you expect charged. yourself to be charged. Yeah. Um, Roger Stone has been saying for some time that he was preparing for an indictment. Don Jr. has been saying, to, uh, you know, it's been reported he's been telling his friends he's likely to potentially to be indicted. So that's an interesting thing. Like, I don't think, you think Don Jr. has been told he's going to be indicted? That doesn't seem to I, make sense to I, me. I'm a little skeptical of that, too. I, I wonder on that, and that's been that there has been public reporting around that, but he he is in the crosshairs of this meeting in the summer of 2016 with the Russian lawyer and this whole conversation where you know he was out looking for dirt on the Clinton campaign, and so I think there are some really interesting questions around his potential involvement in a conspiracy with the Russian government that we don't know the answers yet to. Mueller knows a lot more than obviously we know publicly, but the fact that he would tell that to people if that's true, I think is 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 quite telling that he does fear that he has liability because there were back and forths. And and I even think, we may have talked about this before, but even the emails, when you read his emails, it looks like there's already part of the conversation that's taken place, and this is the second part of the conversation. And so that, I think, is very intriguing, and I would want to know a lot more about that first part of the conversation. Um, and we'll get to the implications, if any, of the revelation that there's an indictment, a sealed indictment against Julian Assange in part two. But l- let's turn to Matt Whitaker, who who has gotten a lot of grief yep. over the last... He's had a tough week. Over the last number of days, including his hawking or working for a company that hawked like the man toilet. Um, we don't have to yes. go into the details on that. That was allegedly a, fraudulent. There were it's a engagement. family show. Um, you can look up what the man toilet means uh, in your own free time. Um, but then also, you know, so last week on the Stay Tuned podcast, I mentioned 
the OLC opinion that seeks to justify Whitaker's appointment. I happen to think it's unlawful and unconstitutional. It is not completely frivolous, the arguments that are made on the other side. But at the end of the day, it seems to be a, a bad idea. You don't need to be a trained lawyer to see that it's a bad idea and how much appearance of conflict there is. And the, the other thing that I noted from the fact that John Yu of torture memo fame, uh, who says that the appointment is who unconstitutional. Who worked in the Bush administration. Right. He said something interesting. I want to get your take on this because my take has changed a little bit since last week. He said he may have handed uh, Bob Mueller a little bit of a gift, uh, meaning the president, by, uh, by appointing Matt Whitaker because the legitimacy of the Whitaker appointment is unclear and, pot- and potentially uh, unlawful. If he directs Mueller to lay off on something or to curtail him in some way, the John Yu argument is, well, now Mueller has the opportunity to say, well, you're illegitimately my supervisor. You're not the boss of me, to, as my kids would say. <laughs> um, actually, they never say that. I, I say that to them, usually. Uh, <laughs> that he, he can challenge the appointment and, and resist direction and supervision from Matt Whitaker. Do you think that could actually happen? I, I think it's a very interesting theory. I think there is some truth in the theory that it was a bad move by the president because this this... The appointment lacks, I think, credibility across in a bipartisan way, right? There are people on the left and the right saying this guy shouldn't be in there, both because of who he is personally and also because of the sort of lines of succession in the Department of Justice and the way that the Constitution wants there to be people in that spot who have been Senate confirmed. So there are a lot of challenges, I think, that potentially exist. There are legal challenges that we saw last week that Maryland AG Brian Frosch um, filed suit in federal court basically arguing Whitaker shouldn't, you know, when, when you become the AG, you're the top um, the top person, and your name goes on all the briefs. So it was Jeff Sessions last week, all of a sudden, two weeks ago, all of a sudden, now it's Matt Whitaker. And so Frosh is challenging, can that be Whitaker? There's also a challenge in the Supreme Court. There was pending litigation. There's a challenge. Mueller's team has been asked to write today to the court and explain, who, you know, who is your boss? So <laughs> there, are, which is a very <laughs> awkward thing question, for right? Mr. Mueller. Um, but so there are tons of legal challenges. On the strategy and on the John Yu piece, I think, look, Whitaker's, for all these reasons we've talked about last week and this week, his hands are tied in many ways if he tries to curtail the Mueller investigation. Do I actually think it gets to the point where Mueller has to do this sort of throwdown with him? I'm I'm really skeptical of that. That'd be fun, though. It'd be great for us to watch. No question. No question. <laughs> but strategically, you think it gets there? Would Mueller walk in? Well, I was just, I was th- here's how I was thinking about it. I was like, you know, Bob Mueller is a sort of special creature, you know, a special counsel created for a particular purpose to investigate particular things. And there's a line of succession. He's supervised by, you know, now this attorney general, acting attorney general, Matthew Whitaker. And if he's illicitly been appointed, he can say, look, I don't have to listen to you. But now I'm thinking, is that also true for all the United States attorneys? If I had been the United States attorney, I was pretty independent. And Matt Whitaker... It's an understatement. (laughs) Very, very independent. We didn't always acknowledge supervision from the Department of Justice. But even so... You might have challenged it. Or it's an awkward thing to think, well, so now everyone... It's one thing to say Bob Mueller, you know, heroic figure, former Marine, and is going to decide these questions that are of high stakes about the presidency in America and say, well, you know, he can say this appointment was unlawful. But the implication of that argument then is that everybody in the department can make the same claim, in particular, independently Senate-confirmed assistant attorneys general or United States attorneys. You think the United States attorney in Kansas can now be like, yeah, I'm not going to listen to that, you know, setting of priorities that you mentioned at all. Well, you know what's interesting? Even if they don't make that argument, the fact that they can, 
I think I think is really important. And the fact that that at any point someone could walk in and say that and might say that is important. I also will tell you, I was acting attorney general in New Jersey for like three weeks. Um, was that a constitutional appointment? It was. Uh, I was second in line. I was the first assistant attorney general at the time when the first AG left before um, Stuart Rabner was sworn in as the, the second state AG. It's a really tough thing to be acting without any of the other stuff we're talking about because everybody knows someone's coming next, that you're not the permanent person. And so people don't... It, I, I don't think you have the same level of authority as a full attorney general just to begin with. Were you the subject of an extended monologue no. <laughs> by Stephen Colbert and Bill Maher? I was not. And the other, so that, that is an additional complicating factor, yes. right? Yes, yeah, completely. Did you see the picture? I don't want to harp on Matt Whitaker, and hopefully I will not have in the immediate future uh, a situation where I'm representing clients in front of the Department of Justice because that happens from time to time. But... You know, at his first speech in the Great Hall, you and I have both been to the Great Hall, yep. someone tweeted a picture saying it was remarkable. It was basically an empty room. Yes, no one was there. Now, when an Again, attorney general comes in and speaks for the first time, it's, it's usually, usually a packed, packed hall. House. Yes, I agree with that. I also think, and you know, one thing I should ask you is, how, how long do you think he stays? Do you think the president moves quickly for a permanent AG? Well, he said, the president said, I think he's doing a great job. And during this period, I think he's perfectly happy for all these reasons that we think are inappropriate, that he must have gotten assurances, not only, well, likely got assurances, but he didn't need to get those assurances because Matt Whitaker is on the record saying what he thinks about the Mueller investigation, saying what he thinks about opening up a new investigation as to Hillary Clinton, um, saying all sorts of things, not to mention Marbury versus Madison, which I don't think was a reason for his appointment. So I think Mueller is very happy to be where We should he, talk about the, the Marbury versus Madison thing for just two seconds yes. because it's one of the most important cases of our country and American legal jurisprudence, which basically says that the Supreme Court gets to interpret the laws of our country and is the final arbiter of whether or not something's constitutional or not. And it, it's sort of the bedrock, I think, of our democracy. And, you know, you, you and I have talked a little bit about this, but Whitaker's take is it shouldn't apply, right? It was one of the worst decisions. There are so many reasons why this person doesn't belong at the helm of the Justice Department, both in terms of process and in terms of background and experience and in terms of conflict. And then finally, as you point out, in terms of his sense of what is good law and what is bad law in the Supreme Court. So, you know, I don't know how long he's going to be there, but uh, but our time is done for part one. Uh, I guess we should talk in part two a little bit about who might replace Matt Whitaker if such a replacement ever happens. Definitely. Thanks, Anne. Thank you. So that's part one of today's conversation with Ann Milgram. To hear the next part, and to hear Monday's podcast every week, go to cafe.com slash insider and become a Cafe Insider member.